The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. Enjoy the show. There might be a niche for this. Like, people like seeing cool engineering projects. And mixing in that kind of like superhero motif is also very effective at bringing in a whole new audience of the, the, the kids and adults out there who love superhero movies. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Being an Engineer podcast. We have a special treat for you today. Our guest is James Hobson, a.k.a. The Hacksmith. Many of you will know James from his wildly popular YouTube channel, Hacksmith Industries. James has a degree in mechanical systems engineering and runs Hacksmith Industries, a company he founded that takes fictional ideas from comics, movies, and video games and makes real working prototypes. A few of the amazing projects he and his team have completed over the years include a working Iron Man helmet with heads-up display, a half-scale Tesla Cybertruck, a functioning lightsaber, Wolverine claws, Thor's hammer, an electromagnetic arm bracer for a Captain America shield, and a Batman grappling hook gun. This is not an exhaustive list, and there are plenty of other projects I encourage our listeners to check out on his YouTube channel, Hacksmith Industries. James, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Glad to be here, Aaron. Well, what made you decide to become an engineer? <laughs> so back in high school, I did a, a shop class that was called Integrated Tech. And at the time, I didn't know what engineering was, but I really enjoyed tech class. I liked working with my hands, working with hand tools, power tools, you name it. And... Throughout that class, I realized, oh, this is this is what engineering is. And then that's kind of what set me on the career trajectory to become an engineer and continue working with my hands uh, 15 years later. <laughs> Very cool. Now, I, I went back way into the archives of your videos, and I looked at some <laughs> of the, the very first ones. And I just, I love that these are still there because they have nothing to do with what you're doing right now, as far as I can tell. Um, they're mostly videos of you and your, your friends in high school doing backflips and, and front flips and like launching off of cars and walls and, and parkour and stuff like that, um, which it, it just seems so genuine to me that they're still there. So A, I love that they're there. B, can you tell me, how did you get into to, to that sort of thing, the, the gymnastics, the acrobatics, the, the backflips? How did that all happen? Uh, I was always uh, pretty athletic as a kid. I was uh, enrolled in gymnastics when I was young. And then uh, that was when uh, parkour took the internet by storm back in like the early 2000s. And you had all the, the sampler videos of people doing death-defying stunts, jumping off buildings and running around. And I obviously thought that was super cool. So I uh, started doing similar stuff like that, tried to make my own videos. It was never quite quite as cool as the, uh, the pro videos that I had seen. But um, it was part of the reason that I actually got into filming videos was to make these kind of like tricking samplers and things where it's just like, let's see what we can do. Cool. <laughs> so that it was in part inspired by the comics that you were reading and, and movies that you were watching. Uh, a little bit. Yeah. I've mm -hmm. always been, I've always loved superheroes and uh, I grew up watching Smallville, the story of Clark Kent before he becomes Superman. Nice. And I guess I've always had that kind of like superhero motif where it's just like, 
man, it's cool to be like, be able to do like, do things that not many people can do. For and that's sure. kind of like, uh, I, I feel like that's held true for like most of my life and just like the crazy shenanigans I get up to. Like normal phrases for me is like, oh, I was flying a jetpack last weekend. And it's just like, <laughs> who says that? And I you have that. the video to prove it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I watched um, another of your older videos. This one was from when you were in college and it was this, this uh, automated machine you put together, which I picked up on really quickly because that's what we do at my company. We, we build automated equipment. And this one was uh, this machine where it took like a, a, a brass ring and it, it pressed it into a washer. And I, I thought to myself, what a great uh, project. And, and it was really impressive um, in part because it was a group of students who had done this and it was, it was an impressive machine. Were you exposed to a lot of like design and, and engineering and technology um, growing up throughout your upbringing? Or, or was it really kind of when you got into college that you started uh, developing those skills? Uh, I definitely started in high school with uh, the tech class. We were in a robotics club, me and my, my business partner, Ian Hillier. And we definitely uh, took on more projects and learned more about the different tools we can use. Like the tech class had a CNC machine that we learned how to use and stuff like that. But as far as like the manufacturing automation technology, that was all thanks to our program at Conestoga College. So um, the program's name when I started was actually Integrated Advanced Manufacturing Technologies and something, something. It was, it was a mouthful. But by the time I graduated, they changed the name to Mechanical Systems Engineering, which uh, has a nicer ring to it, in, in my opinion. Yeah, but, just like S.H.I.E.L.D., right? They yeah. got a better, better ring to it. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was our second year capstone project. So it was a year-long project. And uh, it was myself, my business partner, and one other classmate who made that machine. And the reason we actually went to Conso College was because it had more of that hands-on application than most typical engineering programs do, whereas usually, in general, I, I can't speak for every engineering school out there, but usually it's in the third and fourth year where you actually get to like get your hands dirty, yeah. whereas in our program, um, we had machine shop classes in year one. We were building stuff like every year was an actual physical project except the last year. <laughs> oh, interesting. Well, that's, that's awesome that you guys had so much hands-on opportunity. I remember um, in my education at college, I think, like you said, it was the last year, right? We had a capstone project, and that was probably the funnest year from an engineering standpoint. Yeah, um, definitely. The rest of it was mostly theory, right? Textbooks and doing homework problems and boring stuff like that. Well, um, how did you how did you make this transition from what what, what seems like just a bunch of high school friends kind of having fun making videos to to this incredible business, Hacksmith Industries? How did that transition occur? Uh, I mean, it's a pretty long story, but I'll try and uh, try and summarize it for you. Um, I enjoyed making videos just as a way to show off something that I had done. I also wrote a blog back in the day, and basically it was just my way of documenting projects because I found that was the easiest way to share with friends who aren't physically nearby. So yeah. I started making videos, and I basically make videos of whatever I was doing, whether it was parkour, gymnastics, or making engineering projects, converting a 1993 Honda Del Sol to electric. Um, and what happened was I kept making those videos, mostly just for personal reasons to share with other people. But then my last year of college, uh, YouTube actually opened up the partner program to basically anyone who wanted to apply. And I thought, man, it would be really cool to make money off the internet for something I'm already doing. So 
that's kind of what gave me the uh, inspiration to continue doing it as I graduated and actually went into the workforce. Um, and I got to admit, I don't know how I kept up with it because I was doing one to two videos a week and while working full time. And for about two years, I barely had any traction whatsoever. So it really was a labor of love. Um, I saw the possibility of the channel like growing and becoming something, but honestly, for those first two two or three years, nothing nothing really happened um, until we had one kind of like breakout project, and that was the Elysium exoskeleton build. So one of my coworkers actually gave me some pneumatic cylinders, which at the time were the most expensive part of a project that I couldn't afford. So as soon as I had those pieces, I'm like, okay, now I can build something around these. And I was able to make a pretty janky upper body exoskeleton <laughs> that only had one range of motion. It could curl, but it could curl about 180 pounds in the test video. And that video went somewhat viral, got lots of views, and it made me realize, hey, there might be, there might be a niche for this. Like People like seeing cool engineering projects and mixing in that kind of like superhero motif is also very effective at bringing in a whole new audience of the, the, the kids and adults out there who love superhero movies. So the nice thing is I kind of found this nice little crossroads where I can show engineering, not just to people who like engineering. I can show it to people who also just like mainstream superhero movies and media. And I often say like, like the, what Marvel's done with the MCU has really helped <laughs> helps give me a guiding line to to guide my YouTube channel because if Iron Man wasn't so popular, I wouldn't be able to do these engineering things and make them so cool, I feel. Because as cool as it is being an a engineer, innovator, inventor on the internet, and you can find some success with that, being able to tie it to pop culture that has even more exposure, I think is kind of the... Uh, the secret sauce that really helped propel our channel into uh, being pretty well the biggest engineering channel on the internet, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that, that's a key insight there. Um, speaking of the, the biggest engineering channel on the internet, do you remember um, that exoskeleton uh, video? I, I know it's a lot higher now than it probably was back then, but approximately how many views did you get uh, when you said to yourself, oh, yeah, okay, this, this could be a thing that has a future? I think it was only a couple hundred thousand. It might have hit half a million or so. Okay. And uh, the channel did grow quite a bit. I think I hit about 70,000 subscribers by the end of that year. And um, it was the next year that I decided to quit my engineering job and pursue YouTube full time. And at that point, I only had 70,000 subscribers, which wasn't enough to make money off of the channel, really. So... I had, I think, about six months of savings, and I knew like I had to make it in six months or get another engineering job and give up on the YouTube dream. So yeah, luckily yeah. that didn't happen. Um, right. So it, it grew pretty quickly then. I mean, if you had a six-month runway, and before that runway ended, you, you had enough growth on the YouTube channel. Yeah, it was, it was pretty lucky. I quit my job on November 11th, 2015. Uh, we cracked 100,000 subscribers, I think, in March of 2016. And that summer was when we had our, our our real viral breakout success, and that was the Captain America Electromagnet Shield. Uh, okay. And those two videos ended up getting millions of views within a month, and the channel went from 100,000 subscribers to half a million subscribers wow. in just over 30 days. What a so suddenly, that must have been. 
<laughs> yeah, it was it was quite the wild ride because quite literally we went from being a small YouTube channel to being a decently sized YouTube channel. And as soon as we hit that size, sponsorship offers started coming in. So being able to charge for additional advertising within our videos, which is how this business is able to do what it does. Yeah. So um, and then since then, um, I think for the the following four years, we pretty well doubled in size year over year for four Jeez. years straight. So. Views, subscribers, employees, revenue, you name it. It was pretty much just a rocket ship straight up. It slowed down a little bit, but we've also done massive expansion. We're on a 13,000-square-foot facility, um, and that's just kind of the nature of the platform. There's not too many channels that um, can sustain exponential growth forever, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, congratulations. That's amazing success. Um, I, I imagine that... People who watch your videos, they, they probably don't have a full appreciation for just how much time and, and probably money as well, but but really time and effort it takes to put these together, especially when we're seeing Tony Stark and Jarvis put together a full Iron Man <laughs> suit in like two days, right? Like, yeah, we know I, that I, that's I, not I, reality. <laughs> I, I both love and hate the, the movies for how they portray uh, invention and yeah. even just physics. Yeah, like, it's just yeah. like, oh, why don't you do this? It's like, well... Because that's not possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Electrons don't move that way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, how I, I know that they probably vary quite a bit, but on average, roughly speaking, how long does it take to put together one of these projects, and, and what all goes into it? So it really depends on the project. Obviously, we have very long form projects and rather short ones. There are some projects that we've whipped out in a day. And then there's ones that take months and ones that take years. So our power loader project is finally coming to its end in the next month or two. And that's been going on for two and a half years now. Wow. The cyber truck, we managed to whip that out in, I think, just under eight weeks, start to finish, which was pretty fast for what it was. Um, I was actually much more ambitious. I thought we could do it in one month. <laughs> I was uh, mistaken, <laughs> but well, um, I, I remember um, hearing you talk about how long it took to, to put together that half-scale Tesla Cybertruck, and I think to myself, okay, what are the projects that we've done within an eight-week period? And there aren't that many. Most of our projects are, you know, three or five or six or, or a year long. Um, no. And when I think of the ones that are eight weeks, they're like. Orders of magnitude simpler than a <laughs> Tesla Cybertruck. How did you get that done so fast? Uh, superpowers. <laughs> superpowers. Uh, yeah. It's it's kind of hard. <laughs> like it's just kind of it's what we do. Like we are a R and D skunk works at heart. Um, and the nice thing with what we do versus what say your company does is our products really are prototypes. And I like to say prototyping is the first 10% of the project. It's also the most fun part of the project. Yeah, yeah. But it's definitely not ready to take to market after you've done 10% of the work. So we get to kind of skip out on a bunch of the boring engineering, like uh, making <laughs> Very little sure... documentation. Yeah, documentation, <clears throat> reliability, customer service. I am so glad we don't have customers uh, at least customers for the engineering project. We have customers in that we have brands who right. want views on our YouTube videos, but that's easy to deal with. Um, but yeah, it just, it really simplifies the engineering process, makes it a heck of a lot more fun. 
and allows you to accelerate that timeline quite a bit because, oh, the other thing is we, we do spend a lot of money on these projects and it's just like, oh, would that make it, would this thousand dollar component make it quicker? Okay, let's buy the thousand dollar component. <laughs> Whereas traditionally, most engineering projects have a very fixed budget and that's part of the reason why you take more time making sure your design is perfect. Yeah. Whereas we're a bit more of a running gun, let's get it done. <laughs> well, I think you found the the perfect business model, at least as far as engineers are concerned, right? They just get to jump in and do the fun stuff right away and not worry about the rest. Yeah, it's it's definitely a dream job for pretty much everyone who works here and a lot of the fans who wish they could work here. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, you you had a couple of quote unquote real jobs before you started full time at, at Hacksmith Industries. Did those? Do you feel like those jobs uh, prepared you to be successful as the Hacksmith? Um, I mean, everything as you know with engineering, like every experience helps you in some way. Yeah, a lot of a lot of jobs at engineering companies tend to be fairly specific, though, towards that industry that you're in. So, for example, my first job was working at a company called Athena Automation, and I was a mechanical designer. Uh, the company made injection molding machines. That job um, gave me a lot of skills in SOLIDWORKS, which I obviously use today, um, in sheet metal design, because our our team was the base team, so we, we basically made the giant steel weldment that the entire machine gets mounted to and all the subsystems get attached to. Um, as part of that, we were also responsible for the pneumatic system and the water system inside. So I did actually learn a lot from that job about hydraulics, which we use in the uh, Aliens power loader, and pneumatics, which I've used a whole bunch as well. And I was actually just looking through my notes. Um, I made some design reference um, like cheat sheets for that company. And looking at it now, I'm like, yeah, this is still kind of useful towards like the power loader design. Like, nice. Um, basic... Uh, do's and don'ts of routing hydraulic hoses, um, how to measure different fittings for doing like hose runs, manifold yeah. design, stuff like that. Um, so I did definitely learn quite a bit about that for like heavy fabrication and stuff like that. But a lot of the projects don't really have anything to do with that. Um, my second job was working as a product developer for a company called Christie Digital. They're one of the world leaders in digital projection technologies. So most movie theaters use a Christie Digital projector. Huh. and that one definitely exposed me a lot more to rapid prototyping because I had a, a very big rapid prototyping shop, and I was a very hands-on engineer, so I'd be going downstairs, checking out my parts, seeing if they work and whatnot, um, which is also a lot of fun and definitely definitely helped. But as far as like YouTube and even just doing home projects, really it is you're learning something every project that you do. Um, you're never going to know everything when you start a project. So it's really an iterative learning process, um, developing these skills, developing your engineering skills, and developing the new skills that you might need for this new project that you're working on. Um, and that's why I love the internet, because you can find resources on pretty much anything online. And as long as you have a good drive for learning, um, and you know how to research topics, the world's your oyster. You can, you can become an expert in sheet metal design just by watching SOLIDWORKS tutorials online. Like, it's it's really awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing what you can find online now for engineering, learning, educational content. Um, uh, what, what are some of the resources that your team uses a lot online in terms of 
retailers, you know, purchasing hardware, um, uh, learning new skills, a- any in particular that come to mind that have been just really helpful for you and your team? Uh, I would say McMaster Car is probably our favorite website out there. So so good to hear you say that. Yeah. <laughs> True engineer. Um, all right. Yeah. Uh, as a Canadian consumer, you can't sign up for a McMaster Car account, but as a Canadian oh, no. business, you can. Oh. Ah. So we have an account and it's basically next day delivery on all parts. And if some of uh, your viewers aren't aware of this, McMaster Car has 3D models of almost every single part they sell, yeah. which is fantastic for designing things and engineering stuff because you can literally download the model, throw it into your assembly. Oh, yeah, that's going to work. Bye. Yeah. And then it shows up the next day. So McMaster Car is definitely a very helpful resource. Um, obviously, it can be a bit expensive sometimes, but... Our budgets don't really don't really care care about the uh, the little things like that. And then uh, on the electronics side of things, we've actually been working with DigiKey for okay. I think four or five years now. So they're one of our longest uh, sponsors on board. Oh, and um, basically, um, they we order parts from them all the time, and we get uh, small advertising spend on our videos when we feature DigiKey and Maker.io and whatnot. Cool. And have between those two the, websites, you can get pretty much anything. <laughs> yeah, those are the big boys, right? Have you seen the uh, the new McMaster Car SolidWorks add-in? I have not. Oh that man, you guys, fun. yeah, check it out. They they have come up with yet another way to make it so easy for us to spend money with McMaster. Fantastic. It, yeah, it just it scrubs your entire model, looks for anything that's McMaster part, puts it into a list, and you just click a button and it orders oh, everything wow. right there. Oh, it's it's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. And then and then like I said, SolidWorks. Uh, we've also been working with SolidWorks for three or four years now, so. We have full licenses with pretty much all the add-ons. Nice. I remember the uh, the first time they sponsored us, they gave us three licenses with every add-on. And then they sent us an invoice for what the whole package was worth. And it was something like $450,000 worth of software. <laughs> We're just like, what? <laughs> well, it, that's the superpower right there, right? Being able to get all this stuff for free. <laughs> um, so... I've probably watched, I don't know, 50 or 60 of your videos at this point, and um, they're all awesome. In some of them, again, I really appreciate how how genuine you are in your videos because you, you show some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, some of the things that maybe don't go exactly according mm-hmm. to plan, some, some of the failures. What have been some of the most epic failures that you guys have encountered in your projects? You know, something catching on fire or, or blowing a hole in the wall or anything like that that comes to mind. Uh, yeah, there's definitely been quite a few. Um, we made our own homemade version of Elon Musk's boring flamethrower a day after <laughs> he announced it on Twitter for the first time. And it was fine in that video, but subsequent videos and over the years, we've discovered that it leaks propane quite often. <laughs> and there's been a few times where it's uh, had a bigger fireball from not where it's supposed to be, wow. <laughs> be coming. Um <laughs> There's another dangerous one where we made a rocket-powered batarang, and uh, um, we took it out to the testing field, and we tried throwing it, and the rocket didn't go off. And we're like, oh, shoot, what happened? Uh, <laughs> we bring it back to the shop. We take a look. Oh, one of the wires got cut. No problem. Solder it back together. I'm taking a look at it. And for some reason, I don't know why I, I did this, but it has dead man switches, so it doesn't go off in your face. 
but we also have indicator LEDs, so when you arm it, you can see that the light turns on and it's ready to go. Well, for whatever reason, I didn't hold the dead man switch, and I flipped it on. I was like, oh, blue light. And suddenly, it took off and narrowly missed my face and flew away. Um, but that, was, that wasn't really an engineering fault. That was just my dumb luck. Uh, well, that's kind of the world of R&D, too, right? Early yeah. stage before all the bugs have been worked out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, our most recent mishap, again, wasn't really the fault of engineering. It was more just really ironic. We made a baseball launcher for um, MLB and Xbox this summer. And I broke my hand with a baseball. I saw so The that baseball one. did yeah. not come from our baseball cannon. We were actually just <laughs> filming some backstory to the video about why baseball pitchers can throw really freaking fast. So we went to a baseball batting cage and we had a pro player throw 90 mile per hour balls at us. And I just so happened to have the bad luck and my reflexes weren't 150 milliseconds. So the ball was coming and actually hit my hand on the bat, breaking my fifth metacarpal. But on the plus side, um, I'm well on my way to being a real Canadian Wolverine because I've got a titanium plate in here with five screws. Oh, man. Well, there's a silver lining, huh? Yeah. Was, that, was it the first pitch that he threw that hit you? No, it was like the 10th. Okay. What was that like? I mean, that's a whole other experience right there, being in getting 90-mile-an-hour fastballs thrown at you. The speed at which, like, the pitcher is 60 feet away. Throwing 90 miles per hour means the ball is past the plate within a quarter of a second. Wow. <laughs> the reaction time to do something is about 150 milliseconds. The issue is at 60 feet away, you can't see if the ball is coming at you or at your bat, really, right. because yeah. it's such a narrow angle. Like, even if it's a, a degree off, it yeah. can hit you in the chest, right? So, and, and there's a lot of foreshadowing in the video of me being like, wow, this doesn't look safe. This is dangerous. And the funny thing was, there's one line in the video, literally right before I go to pitch, I tell the I ask the batter or the pitcher. So I stand behind this line and I'm safe, right? And he's I like, that. yeah, probably. <laughs> now, I was also the third one up to bat. So no one had gotten hurt up to that point either. But I guess the pitcher might have been getting a bit tired and he wow. did throw inside. The ball came over the line. But I had no way of like knowing or like yeah. moving in time because wow. I've never even played baseball in my life, which is probably also another issue. <laughs> well, that leads to another question I have. As a direct result of you being who you are, that the hacksmith, right? You got this cool YouTube channel. You're kind of you're internet famous, right? What 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 kind of opportunities have <laughs> have you had that I mean again as a direct result of of being the hacksmith you know like I don't know meeting a celebrity or getting invited to this exclusive event or anything like that? Uh, definitely. So even I think the second year in, I was invited to give a, a, a TED talk in Kansas City, which was really cool. I went to New Zealand for uh, 20th Century Fox for War for the Planet of the Apes. I got to try out their CGI. Um, gorilla suits. Wow. Um, I went to London for a press circuit for it. I ended up interviewing like Woody Harrelson, um, Andy Serkis, um, the director, his name's slipping my mind right now. Um, I've gotten to fly Gravity Industries jet suit. More recently, I flew Jetpack Aviation's Jetpack. I've driven uh, the world's only, um, what's the full name? 
the uh, the prosthesis anti mech um, from Furion Exobionics, and it's basically a giant four legged hydraulic um, monster that only uses analog input from you. So it's very old fashioned wow. anime sci fi yeah. like. Legitimate, you're inside, you're holding a mini exoskeleton, and when you move the mini exoskeleton, the big exoskeleton moves. And that was super cool. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty awesome being an Axmith. We, <laughs> I get to go to a lot of, <laughs> lot of cool events and meet lots of cool people and play with new technology, which is yeah, one geez. of the best parts. And get, life. And, and get free stuff, obviously. Yeah, someone's <laughs> got to do it, I guess. <laughs> well, uh, you mentioned your TED Talk. Um, y- you talked about in that talk that sometimes in order to make technological breakthroughs, you have to venture into a space beyond current technology. Are, yeah. there, are there any projects that you'd really like to do, but we, we don't quite have the technology yet to do them? I, I'd say in general, it's uh, energy storage, batteries. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest thing holding back some of the coolest technology out there. And we've circumvented that multiple times by either having wires go to a massive battery backpack to a cordless lightsaber, or not a cordless, a corded lightsaber. And the nice thing is these projects that we're doing, we can demonstrate that, yeah, if we had like a battery that was 10 times as good, 100 times as good, these technologies would all work. Like uh, hoverboard tech, like any flying project, energy density is the main issue. So that's what I'm really looking forward to is the next paradigm shift in battery storage. Yeah. I don't know what that's going to be, but I'm looking forward to it. And I'm really hoping it's in our lifespan. So all these other sci-fi projects can come to life. Yeah, that's really interesting. That That's the missing link. I hadn't thought about it like that before, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then the one thing that I would like really like is if whatever that battery is, it glows. Like, you know, like physically seeing the energy, I think that would be really cool. Like in sci-fi, it's always like yeah. you got the glowing blue chip. It's like, yeah, that's the battery. I want the next paradigm shift to have glowing in it. <laughs> well, it definitely increases the cool factor, right? Exactly. If something's glowing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, uh, pop up the power cell and uh, put a new one in. <laughs> How do you decide what projects do you, you do? I mean, is it is it all like... I guess Marvel has laid out a pretty good project <laughs> path for you, but did you have a list somewhere and you're just kind of going through that list or is it changing, yeah, we, evolving all the time? Uh, we do, we do have a list, but honestly it's, uh, it's basically how I'm feeling at the time. It's just like, Oh, that's a cool idea. We should do that. <laughs> and, um, from a business perspective, that's not the best way to do things, <laughs> but it's a lot more fun. It, it so, doesn't seem like you're super concerned with the commercial aspect of, of uh, the, well, the devices that you yeah, make. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I, I, I truly believe that just because something isn't commercially viable doesn't mean it shouldn't be made. And luckily, I found this niche on YouTube where I can justify spending tens of thousands of dollars developing this really cool tech that you couldn't sell. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because we, one of the most common comments we get on YouTube is like, oh, you should patent this or patent that. I'm like, yeah, but it's not commercially viable. It's really cool, but this isn't coming to Walmart anytime soon. Like, so that brings up a good point, though. I'm, I'm sure you guys have developed some IP, even if it's not formally documented or patented or, or anything like that. But over the years, you've built these really cool projects, and you've probably figured out ways of doing things that are, I don't know, more efficient than other people know how to do. Do you do you ever plan on or or even entertain the idea of of developing your own product and selling it, or is it that just like uh, against your your whole philosophy? 
Uh, no, it's definitely part of the plan in the long term. And the way I see it is we're basically trying out all these different things. And one of these days, one of these ideas might have some viability. And at that point, hopefully we'll have enough experience in designing and building. And um, we just launched our retail side of the business this year where we um, were designing our own clothes and apparel. And that will actually have our built-in um, distribution. So we're building the framework to nice. actually become more of a traditional company yeah. someday. I just don't know when that day is. <laughs> sure, yeah. But I would, don't have I would, to, right? Yeah, I would definitely like to be able to, to make something really cool that people can actually buy and be like, wow, this is a Hacksmith Industries hoverboard or like whatever. <laughs> that, that's something else I, I, uh, I wondered about, actually. I was speaking with um, uh, the, the CEO of, of this uh, company and uh, they do software development. And we were talking about what is it that engineers really love? And, and he made the point that what we really love as engineers, whether we're developing software or hardware, is, is seeing what we created out in the real world with, with people using it. Is, yep. that, is, is that ever like a thing that, that you think about? And you're like, oh, I wish that you know, I, could, I could see my inventions out there. Or at this point, you just don't even care about that at all. Uh, no, I definitely, definitely care about that. Um, it's, it's really interesting because we have over 1.3 billion views on YouTube. I'm fairly certain our videos have helped inspire a generation of engineers, which if you think about the world impact on getting people into, uh, STEM, that's probably a pretty big impact. Yeah. But it's kind absolutely. of, in, it's kind of invisible. Like, yes, I maybe inspired this person who became an engineer and then did something really cool. Yeah. Like that's awesome. But it's not very tangible. Whereas if we did invent a product that we sell millions of or something, that's very much more tangible where it's like, oh, Hacksmith Industries made this thing. And I don't know what that thing is. But there's, there's definitely a bit of ego there where it's just like, I would love to see us create something that you sure. can actually go out and buy. Yeah. But that's not to discount the fact that we've already had a pretty big impact on um, the youth around the world. Um, showing them a side of engineering that makes engineering a lot more appealing than uh, how schools usually advertise engineering. Absolutely. I, I can tell you that uh, I have two boys and they both watch your videos. And one in particular is really pretty into it. He's, he's pretty mechanically inclined already. He's 11. And uh, it, I told him that I was interviewing the Hacksmith and he, his eyes lit up. He's like, really? Is it? So I, I get to be a little bit of a hero. So thank you for allowing me to do that. But my, <laughs> no my point was that he, he's, he, you have impacted him because he, he loves watching your videos and it, it inspires him. He's always you know, looking for something to build, something to make. So um, absolutely. I think you've made a huge impact on the world already. Thank you. <laughs> um, you, you and your team seem to be really good at, at making high-tech devices. Um, I, you know, I, I thought on a budget, but, but maybe that's not really true. You talked about <laughs> you have some like pretty, pretty big budgets. Maybe you still have some advice here. Do you have any pro tips on, um, especially within that R&D space, like how to, uh, how to develop things on a budget? Are, are there yeah. any shortcuts or pro tips that you can share? So especially when we started out, we were much more on a shoestring budget. Um, now we've evolved to the point where we could raid the scrap bin for X part and whatnot. But from a business, it takes us too long to do that. So it's actually cheaper to just buy the parts we need when we need them. 
but that being said, there's nothing wrong with like literally raiding the dumpster, uh, e-waste. A lot of our first projects were literally made out of scrap and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And you just have to get creative. Um, I love dumpster diving. I have since I was a kid. Um, <laughs> well, where like, do you go for your e-dumpster diving? Usually just like uh, residential neighborhoods. Like when you see appliances left out, like microwaves. Okay. Microwaves are fantastic for parts. Huh. There's there's buttons in there. There's LEDs in there. There's a big transformer that you can turn into an electromagnet or you can just use it as a transformer. You can rewrap it so you can melt metal with it. There's just, just don't touch the, um, the uh, what's, what's it called? The... Uh, magnetron those are would not recommend um but quite literally like you can like even like old fans you can grab the motors out of those like Uh, there's there's so many parts that you can salvage from e-waste to help you come up with this new project or idea and uh, that was definitely a big part of our original videos but now we could do that but it ends up just being more time and effort to actually do that than just, yeah. just buy the parts we need. Sure. And we're, yeah. we're trying to transition into that kind of like Stark Industries vibe where it's just like, no, we're the high-tech engineering facility now. Like, we don't cut any corners. We don't like... Nice. Not? Yeah. Those are great, great suggestions. Um, uh, speaking about the uh, melting metal, right? Uh, I wondered, what, what is the most challenging material that you've worked with in in your projects and and what kind of manufacturing processes or fabrication process were you doing to that material um so ever since we got the cnc plasma table we started making absolutely everything out of mild steel which also resulted in the projects being very heavy (laughs) which wasn't always a problem but it's kind of a it's it's become a bit of a meme where it's just like how do you tell if it's a hacksmith project weigh it (laughs) Um, we, we've maybe gotten a little better because now we can afford to use nicer materials. We've even used aluminum a few times. We've used titanium a few times. And, uh, in the future, I'd love to just make everything out of titanium because it's that cool metal that everyone's like, Ooh, titanium. And if money's not an object, you can make some pretty cool stuff out of titanium. But currently our favorite material of choice is stainless steel. Okay. Um, it can be a bit hard to machine, but it's not impossible. Um, you do have to TIG weld it instead of MIG welding or stick welding. But honestly, TIG welding isn't that hard once you pick it up. And the result is a project that's not going to rust and it's going to last for a very long time. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite things about making props or projects out of metal. Is it's just like, if you put this somewhere, it would last for centuries. And that's really cool compared to um, other forms of art where it's just like if you paint a picture, if you take care of that picture, it could last a very long time. But the world's elements are just going to destroy that. Yeah. Whereas when you make something out of metal, it's just like this This is going to outlast me as a person. Yeah. And that's a very like, it's an interesting thing to think about that you're leaving something behind that could still exist hundreds of years from now. Uh, yeah. I kind of like that. <laughs> I, I'm going to go back to um, the, the thread about doing things on a budget, but this time instead of doing a project on a budget, uh, you and I and, and most engineers I know, we went to school, we spent years there, we got a degree, and now we're engineers. That's not an option for, for everyone, whether it's because you know of, of, of uh, I don't know, financial issues or just life circumstances in general. What what advice would you give to someone who wants to to learn the fundamentals of engineering but just 
for whatever reason, can't can't go to school, can't spend four years and, you know, whatever it is, $80,000, $100,000 to get that piece of paper. Yep. Uh, Definitely the internet. Like, honestly, there's nothing you can't learn on the internet that you're going to learn in engineering school. The issue is most of our industry is very, very set on you need an engineering degree to do engineering. But the reality is, if you have that work ethic, if you have that dedication, you can learn pretty much anything online, whether it's through YouTube videos, online courses. I know MIT has courses online that are free to free to go through. Um, where there's a will, there's a way. The issue is then getting into the job market because engineering is one of those professions where typically an employer wants you to be an engineer. For me, I don't care what school you've gone to. I don't care if you've even gone to school. I believe that engineering is something that you can really teach yourself through trial and error. And you won't see me exclusively hiring only from MIT or University of Waterloo. It really doesn't matter. I want to see what you're capable of doing. Now, unfortunately, I'm not a typical employer of engineers. But for any startup that's trying to solve a problem, again, that piece of paper that says you got an engineering degree isn't going to mean that you're going to be a great engineer. And I think that's the important differentiating factor there. Preaching to the choir, brother. I agree 100%. It's, it, that piece of paper means very little, in my opinion. Show me what you can do. You know, Show me a portfolio of something you've built or projects that you've done. Uh, yeah. I think the tide is changing a little bit. I, Google and uh, a couple of the, of the big tech companies, maybe a year or a year and a half ago, put out um, something saying that they were no longer going to require degrees for certain positions. Not not all highly technical positions. But I think, That's awesome. Yeah, I think that the tide is starting to change and, and employers are recognizing more and more that people don't necessarily need a degree in order to be an engineer, which I love. I think that's very healthy. Um, and definitely gives a lot of inspiration and hope to those people who might not be able to afford absolutely. A, a degree Oh, think of the, the talent pool that's out there, right, that isn't tapped into because they don't have the right credentials. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, what are what are a couple of tools without which you and your team would just be lost? You know, the things that you use so often. You mentioned the plasma cutter. Maybe that's one of them. Um, and then a follow-up to that, have you developed any of your own tools internally because you couldn't find something off the shelf? Right. Uh, so the first tool, which I really credit a lot of our success to, was I purchased a CO2 laser cutter. Um back in 2013, so good good eight years ago. Um, and I was able to buy that because I was actually working for Hackaday. I was a, a content creator for Hackaday, and I basically saved all the money I earned from that, and as soon as I had enough money for laser cutter, I bought the laser cutter. And that laser cutter allowed me to rapidly prototype things even faster than a 3D printer. Because everyone thinks about when, when you say rapid prototyping, everyone's like 3D printing. And 3D printing is awesome. 3D printers are fantastic. But laser cutters are a rapid prototyping that makes a very functional part. And with a bit of creativity, you can make almost Mm. anything with a laser cutter. You can make 3D things. You just have to think two-dimensionally, two-three-dimensionally. And that laser cutter really opened up a lot of doors for a lot of the original projects that we did. And then when we upgraded and got a CNC plasma table, suddenly we could do everything that we were doing with plastic and wood, but with metal. And that was like a paradigm shift for our project capabilities. 
And then last year, I went out and I bought a fiber laser. And a fiber laser is like a plasma cutter on steroids because it's got a really tiny kerf. It barely needs any post-processing. It can cut super accurate parts. You can process stainless steel and aluminum with it. And that was like another paradigm shift for wow. us. I've never heard of a fiber laser before. What was the difference between a laser cutter and a fiber laser? So it's just the laser technology within the, um, the equipment. Uh, okay. CO2 lasers can process uh, plastics and woods. But typically a CO2 laser, which is an infrared laser, it can't cut through metal. Got it. Whereas okay. a fiber laser, and in this case, I believe our laser is a Krypton laser. So 1.5 kilowatt laser goes through a fiber optic cable. That's why it's called a fiber laser. And then it allows you to cut up to almost like um, three-eighths stainless perfectly accurately and whatnot. Um, so that really opens up a lot of doors. I think the next piece of equipment we'd like is an EDM machine, mm. electron discharge machine. Yeah, Those are very expensive, very, uh, very specific, but could make some very, very um, accurate parts. And it would just enable another dimension of the things we're able to create. Yeah. Beyond that, um, on the wish list, I'd say a metal 3D printer someday would be really cool. But those are obviously still quite expensive in the six-figure-plus yeah. range. Um, any kind of like five-axis water jet cutter would also be cool because then you can actually cut angles and whatnot. So that would be the next paradigm shift for the fiber laser, I'd say, would be... Or maybe a five-axis fiber laser. Those might exist as well. Yeah. But the ability to make almost anything in-house is what I'm really going for. And my hope down the road is that we get all these different manufacturing technologies in-house so we can be like, oh, which machine are we going to use to make that? What's the best way to make that? As opposed to how can we make that? Because there's always there's always a way. It's just not always the best way. Yeah. But once you have enough of that, those manufacturing technologies, you can choose the best way. And that's really exciting because we'll be getting to the point where we can be a true skunk works where we can make absolutely anything in house without outsourcing anything. In fact, the, Stark's lab. Yeah. In fact, the only thing we outsource sometimes is laser cut parts. And it's just because we have to cut a lot of them and we're like, Oh, we'll let another machine shop cut them for us instead of using our own machine just because we're under, under a time crunch. Yeah. But, um, we've, we've gotten 3d printed metal parts a few times as well. Um, but beyond that, we do pretty much everything in house. And once we get those, that kind of equipment, we'll be able to do everything in house. Very cool. Uh, how big is your team right now? Uh, we just hired two more people. So we're up to 23 right now. Wow. That's exciting. Crazy. Yeah. Do you find that it's more effective to, um, have the same people designing the parts, go out and fabricate those parts? You guys have a lot of your own fabrication equipment now, or do you try and hire people that are specifically fabricators, machinists that, that make the parts and there's kind of a, a, a separation between designers and fabricators? Uh, there's definitely a bit of both. But I'm sure you know the standard thing. When the engineers work in the office and the fabricators work in the shop and the engineers design something, then the fabricators yell at the engineers because they don't know how to make anything. <laughs> yeah. I always say, like, you should at least have a bit of knowledge about how things are manufactured. For so sure. pretty well, all of our designers are capable of welding, running the CNC machine, doing X, doing Y. But we do have some experts in each area. So it's like, Okay, well, we can pass it off to this person now because they're the best at doing this. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that the designer can't do most of it themselves. 
And I think that's very important and it makes you a much more well-rounded engineer because you're understanding the entire process from the design to manufacture as opposed to the design and the theoretical manufacture. And then you get down to the shop and it's like, what were you thinking? You can't mill apart with square (laughs) pockets? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you can with a triangle drill bit, so... What um uh, what what's been the most challenging project that uh, you've taken on to date? Uh, definitely the power loader. Um, it was definitely a bit of a pipe dream. In fact, it's kind of cool. There was a video from 2016 when I said I'd love to do the power loader someday, and for some reason I'm like, oh, it'll probably cost like ten thousand dollars, which back then was a lot of money. No, it's more like a quarter million dollar machine at this point. <laughs> um, but and, a, and for those who don't know, tell us a little bit. What what does the power loader do? Uh, so the second Aliens movie, Aliens, back in the 80s, um, there's basically a yellow walking forklift. Um, the equivalent of a, a regular forklift, but cool and sci-fi in space. Um, and... The biggest issue with exoskeletons and Iron Man suits out there is they're always so compact and there's no room for the actuators and whatnot. So the Aliens power loader was one of like, the few examples of an exoskeleton in science fiction that was big and bulky and could actually do what it does in the movie. So it became uh, an ideal project for us to try and take on. Unfortunately, um, the, uh, the movie company had it easy because theirs was made out of foam and there's actually a guy inside of it puppeteering it. And uh, Sigourney Weaver was actually strapped to the guy's chest inside the costume. And she's pretending to pilot it. And there's literally a guy inside the costume moving around. So it was, it was like a giant marionette. So the challenge for us, obviously, is how do we make that actually work without a person inside? And they designed it to move around, but just move around. There's no powered actuators or any joints. So... It was quite a challenge designing one that would actually work. And unfortunately, we weren't able to go the, the entire way because it had legs. Now, making legs for a 10,000-pound mech, I would say, is probably near impossible. Robot legs exist. Like, Boston Dynamics has some amazing demonstrations between, like, the Atlas, um, Spot, the robot dog. Like, it is possible. But all those are a couple hundred-pound robots with high-speed electric motors and servo drives that are able to react and balance themselves. When you're working with giant hydraulics, you could make a pair of legs, but it would probably be like one of those toys from the 80s where they kind of just, like, shuffle. Yeah. And personally, I don't think that would be very exciting. So we ended up going with um, a tread design, which the cool thing is... In the Aliens franchise, there was actually a military version of the power loader that featured tank treads. So oh, the neat nice. thing was, we were actually able to somewhat stay true to the source material and make a hybrid between the movie version and this uh, game version that had tank treads. And the neat thing is, it'll be a far more functional machine. I still wouldn't say it's commercially viable in any way, but with these tank treads, the power loader can zoom around at 20 miles per hour, which is a lot more fun than being a statue that can kind of like shuffle around and not really do anything. Are you going to be able to use it around your shop to like, I don't know, lift crates back and forth, things like that? Nice. Will it be the the easiest way to lift things? (laughs) It will be the coolest way. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the forklift will work better, but uh, obviously it'd be cooler to use the power loader. And, and, and hopefully there will be some glowing going on on this power loader. 
Um, Blowing batteries, maybe? Actually, yeah. So I think it's electric in the movie, but we're going with a diesel power plant with the uh, Caterpillar skid steer on the base. And that's just a heck of a lot easier and more convenient. Um, But the neat thing was, this is kind of a cool example. Um, The power loader was actually manufactured by um, Caterpillar in the year 2100. And I actually managed to get a sponsorship deal with Caterpillar. So they actually gave us a Caterpillar skid steer for the base of our Caterpillar power loader. So it's got the Caterpillar logo on it, which is literally just like the one in the movie. That's awesome. And it's kind of, it's a, it's a really cool, um, little marketing tidbit there for Caterpillar. And the neat thing is once we're done, Caterpillar wants to actually use it for a few events. Oh, cool. As a prototype. And, uh, they're going to try and get a hold of Sigourney Weaver and oh, possibly James Cameron and see if we can get them somehow involved. So we're crossing our fingers that we get Sigourney Weaver to pilot our power loader, which Jeez, yeah. I don't see why she wouldn't want to do that because you'll be able to, it'll be really cool. <laughs> Another amazing hacksmith opportunity on the horizon. <laughs> uh, well, even at a, a quarter million dollars, I'm, I'm really impressed that you guys have been able to put together something that even closely resembles the, the actual power loader. That's it's, it's definitely impressive. our most, most engineered project and most possible to be a real piece of equipment. Yeah. Um, it's, I would say, um, I, I was saying engineering, we, we do the prototype, the first 10%. I'd say the power loader is more like the first 50, 60, 70% kind of thing. Like it's still not ready for mass production, but it's a heck of a lot more of a finalized product than just a rough prototype. Because yeah. we can't really make a prototype power loader. Like we're not going to make another arm and be like, ah, let's make that better. So we've had to be a lot more careful with design and the manufacturing yeah. because we want to make sure like whatever we're making actually works. Yeah, there's another hundred thousand down the toilet. All right. Uh, what 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 has been um, the best comment that you've ever received? Like underneath the video on your your YouTube channel, and the word "best," I'll let you take that however you want. It could be some crazy troll spewing insults, or it could be you know a, a crazy huge fan that has has been really inspired by your work. But what's the best comment that you've seen so far? Uh, definitely the the inspiration route. We've seen yeah. lots of comments where people have said basically like, and and this is the cool one now because we've been making videos for like, well, I've been making videos for over fifteen years now, but Hacksmith Industries have been making videos since twenty fifteen. So people we inspired in the first and second year of our business of our YouTube channel can have gone to engineering school, graduated, and gotten jobs. That's so very cool. We've gotten a few comments from from people like that who are like, I started watching your videos back in 2016. <laughs> you inspired me to go to engineering school. Wow. I went to engineering school. I'm now an engineer. What I'm working in this awesome company. That's just like, damn. And yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. Well, congratulations for that. I mean, your, your YouTube channel is, I think, 12.2 million subscribers at this point i think i saw a couple of the videos that were up close to 40 million views so just a a really incredible business and uh, organization that you've been able to put together i'm I'm so impressed um uh, one more question before i let you go this is probably the most important question of the interview can you still do a (laughs) backflip i can still do a backflip on uh, soft ground (laughs) 
There you go. That still counts. I I cringe at the idea of doing it on concrete again. I'm just like, that's a lot of dynamic energy going into your legs. It's just like, ugh. You were doing backflips everywhere. I think I saw one on your graduation stage as well. And like out in some city in front of a bunch of people just all over the place. Backflips everywhere. Awesome. All right. Well, James, thank you so much for uh, for joining me today. This has been just a, a huge treat to get to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time and for, for everything you do and your team at, uh, at Hacksmith Industries, inspiring the world's next engineers. I appreciate that. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please share the episode. To learn how your team can leverage our team's expertise developing turnkey equipment, custom fixtures, and automated machines, and with product design, visit us at teampipeline.us. Thanks for listening.